Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. Hi, I'm Ted Cooper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what is ephemeralization? Ephemeralization is a word that, uh, as far as I can tell, was coined by Buckminster Fuller in 1938, and I think first used in his book, Nine Chains to the Moon. And ephemeralization is a interesting concept because I feel like it's the earliest word that we've been able to find that describes this phenomenon that a lot of people are talking about, but sometimes using different words. And uh, I'll just go ahead and give the definition of ephemeralization, which is the idea that technological advancement allows us to do more and more with less and less until eventually you can do everything with nothing. I think that a lot of people are talking about this idea today, especially as it relates to computers. And there's a lot of different terms out there. So what we're going to do in the podcast is kind of run through some of the different terms that we all think are sort of pointing towards this same idea. That yeah, is basically, we think they're all just synonyms for ephemeralization, which we've sort of decided is our favorite of these terms, mostly because it's uh, the broadest and the oldest. And uh, the fact that it comes from Bucky Fuller uh, doesn't hurt. If anybody out there knows of a term that predates this, that means the same thing, then I'd love to know. But as far as I know, this is the, yeah, the original. And Buckminster Fuller, obviously, you probably are familiar with him, but he's just one of the famous original futurists. Yeah. The main way that uh, ephemeralization has been used, uh, I think, is as a, uh, by those people who disagree with Thomas Malthus and his prediction that uh, population growth is going to be basically unsustainable. So because uh, you have this alternative vision that if you can do more and more uh, with less and less, then uh, you can increase living standards for everybody in the face of uh, an ever-growing population uh, and not have problems. And in fact, I think if you look at the history of the 20th century, uh, it's been um, more of a, a history of ephemeralization and growth than of uh, Malthusian limits. Um, so I think uh, so far it does uh, appear to be bearing out. And there's a, there's a pretty good video that we stumbled into online while researching this that kind of, you know, explores this concept. Uh, oh, yeah, we should link that. Yeah, we'll, we'll link to it uh, in the post. Uh, but explores this in, in terms of one technology, which is like bridge making. And it sort of takes you through the history of making bridges and how we've used less and less materials and literally less and less mass over time to create bigger and better and stronger bridges. Right. And by, of course, by yeah. leveraging ideas, basically right. just ideas about shapes and things like that. It's a really cool video. And apparently it's based on a lesson that uh, Fuller used to teach. Uh, and it shows that um, there is a way out of the Malthusian trap, which I think is um, important to remind people. Which is ingenuity, really. Yeah. And, and right. Ideas are the way out. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the, the bridge example, you know, can broadly be applied to food or to so many different technologies where we're just getting more out of less. Now, uh, again, Buckminster Fuller is not the only one who's coined a similar term. We found another term, which is dematerialization, um, which is very similar. Mm -hmm. uh, and the definition of that in economics appears to be uh, the absolute or relative reduction in the quantity of materials required to serve economic functions in society. So it's, it almost means the same thing. And I, I first encountered this term um, in a video that uh, Peter Diamandis did. Peter Diamandis, the author of Abundance, right. sort of a contemporary futurist that's talking about much the same ideas. Um, but the term is actually not coined by him. I couldn't find what the uh, most original sourcing of it was. But uh, 
But yeah, this seems to be more of a term for the same thing. Economics jargon term. uh, And the only real difference in its definition seems to be uh, the specificity of economic functions. So it's dealing with things that are measurable by money uh, rather than um, just saying more and more with less and less, which is a little bit more vague and broad. Um, Right. It could cover some things that don't, uh, strictly speaking, meet the definition of an economic function. And it's often applied to products specifically, like dematerialization of the product sort of describes how the shift from relying on products to services, say, or from multiple products to just one product, right? So uh, some of the examples that I've seen are like digital music uh, distribution systems um, kind of dematerialize, you know, a lot of the products surrounding music, right? You know, down to maybe just one iPod, say, from, you know, before having uh, a huge, uh, a huge record stereo collection. system and yeah. record collection, sure. Uh, but also just changing, you know, to down to having, you know, services like uh, laundry services or bike hire schemes, things where like maybe people are owning less products and simply purchasing services in replace of those. Right. Just as a phenomenon, that's the same thing. Uh, anytime that you can substitute uh, a non-material service for a material product, that's dematerialization. So it, it actually is... I guess in that way, it's a little bit different because we probably wouldn't consider a laundry service ephemeralization. No. Uh, unless it were an automated laundry service and a robot was doing your laundry. Well, it might be more efficient, right? Because if you're doing all your laundry in, in one place, uh, you might be using like less overall soap or something than if sure. everybody's doing their laundry separately. Well, and one person who's very uh, skilled at doing laundry uh, probably does a better job, which is why there's like dry cleaners. And right. Like they can that. afford bigger and better equipment. Right. So that is more, exactly. So... So it, it might apply. And then uh, the example that Peter Diamandis gives, and this is another video that we'll link to, is he just mostly is just talking about smartphones. And I, we've talked about this before on, the, on sure. the podcast, just like how many things a smartphone does. It dematerializes potentially your watch, your calculator, your flashlight. Uh, right, your all, book. All, all kinds uh, of these. Your, of course, your telephone. Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, and the, these are things that uh, we, we often uh, describe this as eating things, right? Like the cell phone is sort of eating things in your house. It's eating your television and it's eating your camera. Um, but dematerialization is uh, just another way of, of phrasing that. I think uh, those things used to be another piece of material in the house. Now they're not. And we'll, we'll return to the word eating in a second. But yeah. Um, so, yeah, so we've got... Uh, ephemeralization, dematerialization, and then another person who's written about this same topic a lot is John Smart, who's a futurist. And it seems like he coined the term stem compression sometime around the 2000s. I don't know exactly when he first invented this. Um, STEM stands for space, time, energy, and and matter slash mass compression. Oh, that's confusing because when I heard that, I assumed he was using the yes. normal educational use. Of that is also what I thought. STEM. Until uh, I read it more closely. Meaning uh, science, technology, um, mathematics. Yeah, you can see why this one didn't... I think John Smart is a cool guy, but you can see why this one doesn't catch on. And actually, he cites Buckminster Fuller because he's an academic. He's done his research. And so, but I'm not sure exactly how his term differs, but it seems to be very similar. It's just... Again, he seems to just be getting more specific, right? He's talking about particular types of compression of space, time, energy, and mass. So those... uh, You can imagine some things that maybe don't fall into that... uh, category. Well, I guess adding in time and energy, because I think the original Buckminster Fuller point had a lot to do with just mass, right? It was just really just resources, less material stuff, right? And so I guess John Smart in a way is expanding that to include some of these uh, even bigger things like time and energy. Well, energy uh, generally can be 
boil down seen to mass. As, seen as resources because it's about sure. you know energy resources, whether whether you're getting them from solar panels or from uh, gasoline. But uh, I mean, yeah, matter and energy and maybe to some extent space are all sort of covered by Fuller. But I think time is actually really different and not covered by Fuller. Uh, we were just talking about this earlier. Like you uh, may spend more time building the, uh, the stronger, more ephemeral bridge uh, because you have to design it and you have to create the materials that go into it and everything. But uh, you do end up doing you know, more work with less mass and less, uh, less energy input possibly as well. But you do compress the time probably as well when, yeah, you once you automate do. the bridge construction. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I mean, in many cases, ephemeralization, we're also saving time, but I don't think that's a requirement. And I'm not sure that was the, the spirit of, of what Buckminster Fuller was originally emphasizing. No, I think he was talking about doing with less resources, so less... Physical resources. Physical resources, whether that's energy or, or other types of matter. Now, John Smart has two related concepts that I think are much better terms because they, they, they sort of roll off the tongue better and they're more interesting. Like w- the one I really like is inner space, which we've talked about before on the podcast, mm-hmm. which is uh, he sort of takes this stem compression idea and applies it to civilization writ large as sort of a futurist prediction about where we're headed. So, you know, typically visions of the future involve expanding into outer space. And he talks about instead the race to inner space. So if we're getting more and more out of less and less, maybe we're not going to be expanding. And he actually takes this to its logical extreme with something called the transcension hypothesis, which is the idea that we literally, you know, advanced technological societies uh, start doing so much with so little that they literally just become this like hyper dense, almost like black hole like mass of computing matter. I'm, right. I'm probably paraphrasing this slightly wrong. You can look it up, but right, right. Well, and this is a compelling vision of like an infinite universe inside our own computing substrate where we all can live virtually endless uh, lives and uh, and you know s- explore all of the complex problems that are there are to explore in the in the in the universe, uh, but all in a, in a very low resource virtual space where we can have many, many, many more of us operating. Sure. And this is a, I mean, this is a possible answer to the Fermi paradox, right? Which is... Right. Which is, is, that's maybe where they're hiding is they're not out looking. They're just yeah. uh, turned inward and uh, maybe they're, uh, you know, invisible to our spectrum because they're not even emitting any any readable uh, energy. That's where the, the aliens are hiding, right? So right. Just, just in case, I assume our audience would know this, but the Fermi paradox is the famous question of since the universe is so old and it's so big, there must have been technologically advanced civilizations or aliens that would have achieved uh, high technology, you know, in the universe before us. And if if what technologically advanced civilizations do is they go out and explore, why haven't they already reached us, right? Where are right. they? Yeah, if it's possible to find ex- extraterrestrial life, why hasn't it happened is basically the question. And uh, before, So maybe they just went into... Before uh, the answer was yeah. like, we didn't have the technology to really even detect life probably but now one possible answer is this idea that uh they're out there they're just uh they turned inward and they're not looking for us and their fact they're probably actively hiding from us right well who knows what their <laughs> what their they, motivations are but if, they may not need to expand right they may not have that right, right. Uh, that that desire or like uh, it may just be safer to hide from everyone too since you don't have to find out if somebody's peaceful or not if they never discover safer and, and probably cheaper right because you know, definitely cheaper because travel is expensive extremely expensive to travel light years right uh, or at least uh, it is for us we don't know maybe for aliens it's a, it's a cheaper deal so then then more recently um you know obviously because of computers and because computers take this ephemeralization idea and literalize it so much in the way that it actually often turns 
physical things into ones and zeros, which, you know, really feels like doing more with less in a, in a very concrete fashion. And since we see that happening a ton, a lot of people have started coming up with terms that try to capture this concept as it applies to computers. So there was a pretty famous article very recently in 2011 written by Mark Andreessen just with the title, Software is Eating the World. Uh, and actually, I went back and looked at that article and a lot of the examples in it are out of date now, but that I feel like that title still kind of captures this concept in a way that captured people's uh, attention. Yeah, it's a great formulation. Yeah. You know, you can really imagine what it's talking about and everything in the world is sort of getting eaten by software. Uh, you you know, the, the calendar that used to be on your desk is now inside your phone, et cetera. So you can really see uh, what that means. And uh, it's not just software, of course. There's a whole interplay with hardware as well. Um, and when you get back into the Buckminster Fuller ephemeralization term, you realize that some, in some cases it can just be an idea, a mathematical idea like the arch can be part of this process. So it's not always literal software that's been written on a computer, but of course that's the most powerful and most visible part of this. That's the and, trend that we're seeing today and, most concretely, yeah. And it's, well, yeah, and it's the part that's doing the most in total. So I think it's okay to focus on, on software specifically and on computing in general. But another term for that that we've seen uh, used recently is the digitization of everything, which is almost just an analogous term. I mean, sure. digitization and making it, it making something into software are basically syn synonyms. And then everything and the world are uh, also basically you know, just another way to way. say the same thing. Yeah. So I mean, uh, that's a uh, that's a term that uh, Brynjolfsson and McAfee uh, used uh, for one of the chapters in their book, uh, Second Machi Machine Age, and that's another good term. I'm not sure that it's quite as uh, visible uh, or visceral and, and, and compelling as software eating the world. I think I maybe prefer that. And then uh, zero marginal cost society is a is the title of uh, Jeremy Rifkin's new book, which also, I mean, this one I think is a little more far removed in that this is very specific to uh, economics and in terms of its meaning. And this is the idea that, you know, things like software become so cheap to reproduce. Like maybe you have some... Uh, expenditure right. of resources to create the initial copy of something like the initial song file. But then after that, uh, it's almost free at that point to distribute and, and replicate it. And, and the idea that that's going to be applied writ large to just about everything in society is sort of the premise of, of his book. But it's also, I, I think something that a lot of people are talking about just in various different languages. Right. Yeah. I think the thing that he's trying to sort of distill or, or add to the discussion is that, uh, in ephemeralization, the the logical endpoint seems to be that you can do everything with nothing. You can literally have a completely virtual world. And he's trying to maybe back away from that and say, well, even in a world where there's still significant fixed costs for lots of things, where the first that first production model, that first song file, or the code itself written into the computer takes a certain amount of time or takes a certain amount of effort, it will still be a profound change just when the marginal cost of everything goes to zero. Because that's, of course, on top of the existing you know, uh, computer infrastructure and internet infrastructure that we've all built. So we had those fixed costs already, but now we can distribute files, whether software or music or whatever they are, for, uh, for basically nothing. So that maybe creates different moral imperatives and different societal imperatives on what you uh, are going to do as a society when, uh, when fixed costs can be still relatively high, but uh, almost everything has no price after that. But the thing is that the reason I like the original term ephemeralization is that 
the fixed costs shrink as well, I think. You know, I mean, they don't maybe shrink infinitely, but... Uh, they vary more, I think, from good to good. There are some goods where you can do all your production completely virtually now. If you want to talk about music... Sure. Uh, you know, not that long ago, you know, 15, 20 years ago, in order to make music, you had to have a significant time and capital outlay in instruments. But uh, we're now at a point where you can have a consumer laptop that you already own because it's just your regular computer and uh, consumer software that's freely or cheaply available, and you could create entire pieces of music start to finish that would be uh, of as high quality as you want, as your skill will allow, and that is a completely frictionless, basically zero input production process, where time is the only serious input. But uh, even the time, I think, while it may never shrink to zero, I think even, and even the, the time, time shrinks. Is, uh, you're right. You're not even, wrangling with tape, and you're not you're right. like... right. Absolutely. The time to create a finished product is definitely less. I mean, obviously, it varies widely depending on what you're trying to do, but absolutely, you can create a finished product cheaper in terms of time and for no cost in terms of resources at this point in, say, music. But in some other thing, for an example, uh, if you want to make a film, you're, there's still significant fixed costs because you got to get people together in a physical space and, and put them in front of a camera with a light on them, which is still, while it's cheaper than it's ever been, still costs uh, something. Right. So I think if you want to talk about today, what we're really feeling the effects of the, the decreasing marginal cost much more acutely than the effects of the decreasing overall cost. I right. mean, I, even though I actually think that both are legitimate trends. Absolutely. Over time, they're both trending towards zero, but it seems that marginal cost is trending towards zero faster than fixed costs, at least for some types of projects. It does depend what you're trying to do and whether production can be virtualized. Well, and that's the software digitization thing. Like once it becomes software, once it becomes digitized, it almost... It tends toward it, yeah. zero marginal cost very fast. And yeah, once once the sensors and printers get to a point where you can do your production virtually, then whatever it is that you're doing, uh, those fixed costs plummet as well. But in a lot of things, you can see that those will take longer uh, to get to the point where the scanning and printing is good enough uh, for production to make sense virtually. But anyways, we gave six terms, and I I feel like there's others out there that I just couldn't, we couldn't think of. We found all the ones we could find. Right. But, uh, I'm not sure. If you can think of more, post them in a comment on the blog or uh, or on iTunes, or uh, we're on Stitcher now, too. You could post a comment there if you use Stitcher. But yeah, they all kind of mean the same thing. And I think of these, my, to me, if we're going to choose one, I feel like ephemeralization is the term that should... Uh, Swallow the others, I guess. Well, yeah, it does seem like not just the oldest and therefore most legitimate on an academic level, but also the most broad and the most accurate in terms of what it's describing. Because I don't think, while obviously computing is driving a lot of this change, I don't think this is something that only has to do with computing. And it really does have to do more broadly with, I think, the way that all technological ideas expound upon each other and uh, multiply each other's uh, effectiveness. Yeah, this trend is much older than computers, as, as you can show with the bridge example. Sure. So we're going to uh, link to a bunch of the videos and resources and articles that we talked about as usual. Uh, so if you want extra information on this, please check that out. Uh, and other than that, I think this is it for this episode, right? Yeah, I think we've decided that we're going to use the term ephemeralization. And uh, if you like or don't like that, let us know why and maybe we'll change our minds. But uh, that's the term I think we're going to be using from now on to talk about uh, this process of, of computers eating the world. Thanks for listening. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. 
Thanks for listening. 